The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Massimo. I'm one of the elders here in Gospel City Church. And uh, we'll be um, uh, looking at um, our passage for today, uh, which is out of uh, Genesis uh, 17. And um, uh, we are currently preaching uh, through a series uh, that is titled Abraham's Flaws and God's Grace. Um, and we have seen how God uh, over and over uh, in the last couple of sermons has displayed his grace for Abraham, even though he clearly had flaws. And uh, we've also learned how God is the, the God who calls. He called Abraham and made a promise. We learned that God is the God who blesses as he blessed Abraham in spite of the failings uh, with great riches that, and helped him overcome um, all kinds of challenges. Uh, we learned how a God is a God who covenants, as he cut a covenant with Abraham and appeared uh, symbolically and appeared before him and symbolically promised to uphold the covenant to make Abraham a great nation, uh, to give him land and bless him. And we will explore this component of the covenant even more today. Last week, uh, we learned that God is a God who sees. He sees us in our affliction, and we can faithfully wait for him as he will come true for us. Today, we'll focus a bit more on the covenant as we explore how God is a God who sets apart. So let's begin by uh, reading the text, and uh, let me then pray after that. So we are in Genesis uh, 17, and we will be reading through the whole chapter. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I make, may make you my covenant, my, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into a nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give, you, you, give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offsprings after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. 
any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to him, Shall I, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in the house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God has said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his household, those born in the house and those bought with money from the foreigners, from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning, uh, help us understand this text. Uh, Father, would you help us gain clarity on uh, what this means? Uh, Father, would you help me uh, to preach your word faithfully and boldly? Uh, but Father, we ask not just for clarity. Uh, Father, we ask for conviction in our hearts. May these words this morning convict our hearts and cut us to the heart. So Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, last week, we uh, looked at Genesis 16 and we saw where Abraham, perhaps our uh, frustrations or maybe because of wavering faith, um, think he was thinking that he had to try to help out God and uh, therefore, um, went into his uh, wife's maidservant, uh, Hagar, and um, bore a son, um, which was not through his wife, Sarah. And um, uh, chapter 16 ends uh, saying that Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar, Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Um, the very next verse in, in our text this morning, um, and remember in the Old Testament, um, uh, when it was written, there wasn't chapters or there wasn't numbering. So it was just the very next sentence right away. Uh, it says that Abraham was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him. He goes from being 86 to 99. So uh, 13, year, thir 13 years had passed. During these 13 years, uh, we don't know quite what happened, um, but probably nothing really significant uh, because otherwise it would be in Scripture. Uh, but God appeared to Abraham and confirmed the covenant this time that he already made with him, which we read in chapter 15. And here we see God adding even more blessings or being more clear and giving more specific informations and also placing some demands in giving at the, uh, and giving a sign that confirms the covenant. 
So there are, there's three things that we want to look at uh, today as we're looking at these additional details. Um, and we'll be looking at um, the nature of God, the, the God who sets people apart through covenant. We're going to be looking at the blessings for the people who are set apart through covenant. And we're going to look at the demands for the people who are set apart as well. So three things, the nature of the God, uh, the blessings of being set apart, and the demands that come with being set apart. Well, let's begin by looking at the first point, the nature of the God who sets apart. Well, the first thing we can look at is that God initiates. Uh, the very first thing we notice is that God takes the initiative. He is the one who extends his grace even after Abraham's and Sarah's lack of faith 13 years earlier. God takes the initiative and confirms his covenant. In fifth, chapter 15, um, we read that he makes the covenant, and here in chapter 17, he confirms it. In verse 1, we see that the Lord appeared to Abraham, just like earlier when God called Abraham in chapter 12. And when he entered into the covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, God reaches out to Abraham with his mercy, his grace, taking the initiative. God chooses Abraham, then engages Abraham. God makes the first step. God always makes the first step. You see, Paul in the letter of Romans says, no one seeks God, no one, which means that no one initiates. Now, some people think that um, if they're, they're, they're seeking for God and that they initiate, but if they are initiating, if they are seeking for God, it's actually because God already had done something in them and with them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, the examples here that we see in the Old Testament and even in uh, Romans uh, chapter 3, that Paul says that no one seeks God, no one confirms to us that it is God who initiates. So it's not just that we learn that God initiates, we also learn a second thing about God, that God is almighty and sufficient. In verse 1, we also see a new name for God. It's the first time that we see this name used in the Old Testament. It's going to be used much more in the Old Testament, but here it's the first time. And he reveals himself as God Almighty. Well, in the original language, it's the name El Shaddai. God says, I'm God Almighty. God Almighty is the, trans is the translation of the word El Shaddai, which we might be familiar with. Shaddai means all-powerful, almighty, but it also can mean all-sufficient. God is the all-sufficient one, the all-competent God who knows what he's doing and knows how to do it. Uh, last week, we saw that Abraham and Sarah were doubting that God was sufficient. They thought that maybe they needed to help him out. And they've made a big mess out of the situation. And here God comes to them 13 years later and says, I am the all-sufficient one. Even for us today, that's such a good reminder. Whatever situation we are facing, God is all-powerful. He is almighty. He's all-sufficient. He can help us overcome any situation. Well, the text shows us something else. It shows that God is not just um, the one who initiates, the one who's uh, almighty and sufficient. But God is the rightful authority. He is master and ruler. He has ownership over us. The text says that, well, in the text we read that God can rightfully tell Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. That's a language of authority. He's telling Abraham what to do. And he can say to Abraham, as for you, Abraham, 
you shall keep my covenant. He's demanding something from Abram that shows authority. We also see God's authority as Lord over us when we see God changing Abram's name and also Sarah's name. God told Abram to no longer will you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. This act shows us that God is in charge because only someone with the right authority can change somebody else's name. Name change signifies ownership and dominion. And when God gave Adam dominion over the earth, the first task he asked him to do is to name all the animals. That shows that Adam had dominion. And the right to name somebody today is the right of the parents. It shows authority that they have authority over the kid. So God is the rightful authority. He is master and ruler, and he has ownership. Well, the last thing that we learn about the God's nature, the God who sets us apart, is that he is a God who seeks to engage with us through covenant, that he is personal. God spoke individually and personally and intimately with Abraham. God told Abraham, the covenant is between me and you, between me and your descendants. And we will see God say to Abraham, I will be with you. Um, I will be their God, referring to Abraham's descendants. So we see that God is the God um, that uh, takes covenant. He takes initiative. He extends grace to each of us. He is almighty, all-sufficient, and he's the rightful authority of all. And this God is the God who wants to be your God and my God. He wants us to live close with him in personal relationship. He wants to set us apart for a relationship with him. And he does that through covenant. Well, then since we, we now learned about the nature of this God and who he is and what he desires and how he's all powerful, well, and that he wants a relationship with us, well, what does it look like to be in a relationship with this God? Well, that's what we're going to explore in point two and three. When you enter a covenant relationship, it makes us both uh, two things, both intimacy and legal binding commitment. Uh, you get benefits, but you also give up some freedoms. There are blessings and there are demands. A marriage is such a covenant relationship. Some of you are, are newly married. Some of you have been married for a while. Some of you are about to get married. And um, those who are newly married or those who have been married for a while, you know the benefits that and that come with the marriage but you also know the freedoms that you have to give up for the marriage now some of you don't want to get married right now or even ever because you like your freedom well that just makes and understands that there is a freedom you have to give up now just as a side note uh, neither being married or single is more or less holy or more or less christian it's just an, an illustration i'm using to demonstrate a covenant relationship but Moving on from this example, let us uh, look at point two. So when we, we said early on that uh, being in a covenant relationship, there are both blessings and demands. So point two, we'll be looking at the blessings for the people who are set apart through covenant. God already made a promise to Abraham that he will be a great nation and he will be blessed and he will be a blessing. He will have land and he will have offspring. But here in chapter 17, we see more details of these promises and blessings. We see what is, that is clarified that the offspring will come from his wife, Sarai, which is now named Sarah. 
who also have, yeah, and, and we also see a, finally a deadline, God's timeline. One year more. Abraham is 99. He's going to have his child when he's 100. God is really specific now and gives Abraham something to hold on to. Remember last week, we learned that God's will must be done God's way. Here, God is showing more details of his way. But there are three main things I want us to focus on as we look at the new information that God provides. Well, the first thing is uh, that he will not just be a, that Abraham will not just be a great nation, uh, but the father of nations, plural. In, in verse 5, we see, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of multitudes of nations. Here we see again the significance in the name change from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, the father of nations. Maybe, it's a good question to ask, is God already showing us that this covenant blessing is not merely meant for just one nation? but maybe for more nations, more tongues, and more tribes? Well, regardless, here we see a significant thing that the promise is extended. It is upgraded. It's a, it's a change. It is, well, not a change. It's it, it just, it just made bigger and made more, made more clearer. But not only do we see that the promise is not just to go from one nation to nations, we see a promise of royalty. In verse 6, it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. We see the same thing that he will say to Sarah some verses down as well. This too is new information here for the first time. And we know, and we will know that kings will come from his seed. And of course, we know that the most prominent one in the Old Testament is King David. And King David comes from the line of Abraham. God later on makes a covenant with King David, promising that there will be a king from his line who will reign forever. This king is King Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is a promised royal descendant of Abraham. Well, the third blessing that I want to focus on today is that he added to the covenant that this covenant will be an everlasting covenant. It's a time component. It will have no end. The word everlasting occurs about four times in this chapter. In verse 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. That means this covenant is forever, it's a, is a forever binding promise. That this is binding for even his descendants, which means for all covenant people. Well, the significance of all these three things when you put them together, is that they bring about a, a change of status. Being a covenant people is that you now have a new status. Abraham was upgraded in his status from Abram, Abram to Abraham. He was upgraded from exalted father to father of nations. He was upgraded from commoner to royal. And his status was promised to be a promise for eternity. It is an eternal promise. Today, we as covenant people have the same blessings. As covenant people, we have a new status that we will have for eternity. 1 Peter 2 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This status is an everlasting status. 
So what are the blessings of being a covenant people? It's an upgrade of status. That you're taking from being a, a, a common person to, to a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and this for time everlasting, this for eternity. But with this status change, change comes a change of identity. Because as you change your status, your identity changes. See, a new name that was given is not just a change of status, it changes the identity. A new name often shows that there's been a change in character, an inward change. God is working in the heart of people. A change of name could mean a change of destiny, a renewed purpose, a clear mission. Uh, for Abraham, that would be to realize more and more how he's going to be a part of God's plan of salvation, to bring blessings to a multitude of nations. Abraham recognizes God's rightful authority of his life as evidences, evidenced when, he scriptures, when the scripture says that he fell down on his face before the Lord. So it comes with a, the, the change of name, it's a change of status, and a change of identity. Which brings us to point three, the demands for the people who are set apart. Since you have a changed status and a changed identity, something has to change. And, and the way that change is explained or what needs to take place is in the form of demands that we read here. Well, what are the demands that, that come to the people who are set apart? What are the demands that come to Abraham in the passage? Well, the first demand, it says in verse 1, is walk blameless. In verse 1, Abraham is told to walk blameless before God. Blameless doesn't mean so much perfection uh, of performance, but more wholehearted dedication and devotion. It's called for completely undivided heart. Uh, walk is a big metaphor in the Bible. Uh, it's already been used in the relationship of Adam that Adam had with God in the Garden of Eden. And if Enoch had with God in Genesis 5 and Noah had with God in, in Genesis 6. Um, walking um, means plenty of things, but at minimum, it means these three things. The first thing being that it means obedience. So walking with means going down the same path with God. Uh, therefore, it means to do as God does, living righteous, holy, and faithful. But walking also means relationship. To walk before God means to be, walk in the presence of God, to be near him, to be where he is, to be where you can converse with him and relate to him, to commune with him, to pray. To walk also means process. The metaphor of walking evokes the idea of pilgrimage and journey. Abraham is not called just to obey God, not just to relate to God, but to grow in God. And Tim Keller, uh, who gives us these three examples, writes, so we see that walking before God is a call to obedience, personal knowing, and continual growth in grace. Overall, it means living every second and step of your life in relationship to God. There is no secular and sacred division of the covenantal life. Everything must be done with reference to him. So the first thing is walk blameless. Well, the second thing that we see here, what it means to be a covenant people or the demands that are put on covenant people is to declare your faith publicly. Well, I have to uh, explain a little bit around that statement. So let me start by, by, by looking at the oath sign. Abraham is to take upon himself the oath sign of circumcision. And then to put it all, all male children of his household. 
The mark of circumcision was the physical symbol of the spiritual commitments God required. Circumcision was already practiced in many cultures at that time. Uh, in some cultures, it was a rite of passage of coming of age. Uh, in some cultures, it was a, a, a sign of purity. Uh, but God now adopts it as an oath sign of his covenant, giving it a new meaning. Of course, uh, an oath sign is to represent features of the covenant. It's supposed to represent those features. So it needs to have an illustrative power uh, and to a certain extent. So let's look at the illustrative power that, that this circumcision had. Uh, well, first of all, it's a permanent feature. Uh, when you are circumcised, it's, it's permanent. You can't uncircumcise somebody on the flesh. Right, so in a way, it, it it shows that the covenant that you make with God is a covenant that reflects eternity. It's it's an eternal covenant between God and Israel that they had to do the circumcision. Well, second, circumcision is intimate. It's done on a very very intimate part of your body, so it reminds us how wholehearted and personal the covenant needs to be. We are supposed to serve him with our inmost being, not just a outward behavioral compliance. It's an, it's an intimate thing that needs to happen. Well, and thirdly, circumcision is done through cutting off with a knife. Uh, it's no coincidence that God says that the penalty for breaking the covenant is to be cut off. That confirms the symbolism. Therefore, circumcision, like the other oath signs used in the ancient Near East, and like the one God himself used in Genesis 15, that the God passed between the pieces, you know, that's what we looked at, the, the, these animals who were cut, it means that it was promising to do his word or become like the dead animals. So in the same way, circumcision is a solemn way of saying, I will follow you wholeheartedly or I will be cut off like the foreskin. Uh, circumcision demonstrate uh, the, uh, the devastating, um, uh, the devastating, Devastation uh, that will result of covenant breaking. See, whereas in chapter 15, the covenant with Abraham was private and personal with him alone, now the time had come for it to be public, one commentator says. The circumcision is a public sign. Well, you might ask, why, why are we not bringing all the males of GCC being circumcised? Uh, why doesn't when people come to faith be circumcised? Well, we firstly have to understand a religious ritual uh, or symbol is meaningless unless it's accompanied by a life that is surrendered to God. A, a person can perform all kinds of religious things, rites, ceremonies, and doing them with their heart still being far away from God. So the cutting alone or the outward cutting of the flesh has no significance without a heart change, a being cut to the heart. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word circumcision is also used metaphorically or symbolically in connection with other body parts, showing that God expects more than just a physical sign or an outward expression of a religion. For example, look at Leviticus chapter 26, verse 14. It says, God says, uh, God says, if they shall confess their iniquities, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, then I will remember by covenant. Showing that it was a circumcision of the heart through repentance that was important for God to keeping of the covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God says, 
circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. Again, using that metaphor to talk about hearts. Physical circumcision was very important uh, for the physical descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament times. But in the New Testament, those who are not physical descendants of Abraham, but who come to faith in Christ, they are accepted by God for what Christ has done for them. Galatians 6 says, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but rather a new creation. Now, to really understand this, um, well, we talk about change of identity and, and a change of status and therefore being a new creation. And, and how come we don't have to get circumcised anymore? We have to, well, go to Colossians. Colossians 2 really helps us with this. So Colossians 2, 11 to 13 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. Can you see how this passage, passage speaks of Jesus' death as his circumcision? What does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus' death was a bloody violent act in which he was cut off from God and his people and life itself. Jesus took the great curse and circumcision that all the old signs of circumcision pointed to. He went under the knife. So instead of being circumcised, we are now being baptized in the name of Jesus. As Colossians mentions, Jesus was cut off. He endured the, he was cut off. So he endured the ultimate cut. So we don't have to be cut. But we signify that we have been buried with him and raised with him through water baptism. That's why in GCC, when we baptize people, we baptize them in immersion uh, under the water, signifying that we've been died with Christ and then raised out of the water, signifying that we've been raised with him as well which therefore counts as the circumcision because Jesus is the ultimate circumcision for us. Therefore, physical circumcision is not what is important now. Rather, circumcision is a matter of the heart. Uh, when a person responds in faith uh, to Lord Jesus, allowing him to take control of his or her life, then it is as if they become circumcised in Christ because God is circumcising their heart. And then what we do is we signify that outwardly through a public declaration through the water baptism. So let us review. I said that um, what it means to be a covenant people, what, what are the demands for the covenant people is to walk blameless before God, which means obedience, personal knowing, and continual growth in grace. It also means to declare your faith publicly through water baptism. And thirdly, it means to be part of a local community. You see, this covenant requires a commitment to people. Notice that the punishment for breaking the covenant is to be cut off from his people. It is not cut off from God, but his people. Uh, the rite of circumcision and vow baptism uh, was a way of being brought into relationship with God and with all those also in covenant relationship with God. Every believer shared the same oath sign. You cannot enter into a covenant relationship with God individualistically. It automatically brings you into believing into a believing covenant community. 
That's why GCC, we baptize people into covenant partnership. We baptize them into membership. It is very important. Uh, the main way we are held accountable to walk before God obediently is by entering a community of those who have taken the same oath. Hence, here in GCC, we have equip groups and tea time, uh, which is ways of growing together, walking before the Lord, and keeping ourselves accountable. Uh, together, we discipline and encourage one another and stimulate one another. So, in a way, circumcision was a way to create a new community that can be seen in the fact that God told Abraham to put the sign on the slave, the free, the Jew, the Gentile in his house. All are included. Class distinction, race distinction, all don't matter in a covenant relationship we have with God. Your race, your history, your background, all does not matter. What matters is, do you have a covenant relationship with God? Well, and then, do you belong to a covenant people? And, well, if you belong to a covenant people, then you need to live that out by being part of a local covenant community. So are you a covenant partner? That's, that's a biblical demand, to be part of a covenant community. So here are the demands. Walk blameless. Declare your faith publicly through water baptism. Be a covenant partner in the church. Or if you're a guest here, this is GCC language for be a church member of a local church. Now you might say, wow, I thought this is supposed to be an unconditional covenant. I mean, two weeks ago, when we looked at Genesis 15, uh, we said that God made a covenant with Abraham and he was unconditional. This seems very conditional. It seems that there's lots of demands that we must uphold to be able to be in this covenant relationship. You know, is, is Genesis 15 contrary to Genesis 17? Well, Genesis 15 is significant because this relationship with God was characterized by God taking the oath by himself and therefore giving up his freedom. And he was doing it by himself. He was now bound to Abraham. In that sense, it's unconditional. Maybe another helpful way to look at it is to use the word irrevocable. God will not change his promises. He will not revoke the blessings and the promises that he made. It's irrevocable. However, the covenant is not complete. Because earlier on, remember, I said a covenant is a relationship. I said when you enter a covenant relationship, it mixes both intimacy and legal binding commitment. You get benefits, but you also give up some freedoms. There are blessings and there are demands. Because two people in covenant are expected to have a certain behavior towards one another. Same thing in marriage, right? And if you are getting married, there's a certain behavior that's expected from two people. In any kind of relationship, there is a kind of expectancy that you would have with them. So therefore, in chapter 17, Abraham also takes an oath. Now, why didn't God ask him to take the oath at the same time with him? Why, why didn't God do it at, at, at Genesis 15? Well, I think God is trying to show that the covenant is a covenant by grace. It's not a I scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of covenant. It's not a, I'll do this and then you'll do that kind of covenant. It's a covenant of grace. And to really help clear this up for us, we look at Romans 4, 9 to 12. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? 
For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he has been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul points out here that Abraham was accepted by God in chapter 15 fully. But it was not until chapter 17 that he was circumcised and took the oath to walk before him. So what it means, it means that order matters. Order is really important when it comes to this. What happens first and what happens second? So first, you know, rather, you know, it's not that Abraham binds himself to God and then God accepts him and brings him to personal relationship. Rather, it's God accepts him and brings him to personal relationship. And then Abraham binds himself to God through law. Well, this is the core and fundamental of the Christian faith. It is not that we obey God and then he accepts us, but he accepts us by grace through faith and then we obey. You see, we don't work for an identity. God gives us an identity and then we work from that identity. And we see that pattern throughout the Bible. And in Exodus, for example, God gives a Passover meal, a, a sacrifice meal. And, and then he promises that the angel of the Lord will pass over the people if they, if they paint their doorposts red. And they are saved. Um, the angel of the Lord comes and passes over the people and they escape from Egypt. He leads them out of the bondage and then he takes them to Mount Sinai. But it's only at Mount Sinai that the law is given. And that they ask to then obey God in a particular way. You see, they don't take an oath of obedience of the Ten Commandments which we read earlier on today, they don't take that oath first uh, and then God saves them from bondage. No, they were saved by sheer grace out of bondage and then the oath of obedience comes. This is how it always works in Scripture. It is first that God gives grace and sets people free and delivers them out of bondage, saves them, delivers them, gives them grace and then his people respond in faith. His people respond in obedience. And this is even how it works for us today. As we see God's grace lavished upon us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we receive his grace fully and we are made his covenant people. And then we are asked to respond in obedience. How are we supposed to respond? Well, to walk blameless to declare our faith publicly through baptism and to be a covenant partner in the local church. So my question today is, well, what's, what's holding you back? What's, what, what's stopping you? What, what, what's the problem of us living in this way? Well, I really think that the problem can be summed up with the word cut. Now, let me explain what I mean. You see, the Bible refers to a covenant that a covenant is cut. And that's why we see the cut pieces of animals in Genesis 15. And we see the cutting of skin through circumcision. 
And it says, if you fail to uphold the covenant, we'll be cut from the people. In Deuteronomy 36, it says, God, your God will cut away the thick callus of your heart and your heart and your children's heart, freeing you to love God, your God, with, with your whole heart and your soul and live, really live. In the Gospels, Jesus says, every tree that does not bear good fruits is to be cut down and thrown into a fire. Earlier today, uh, we read uh, John 15, and it says, well, he, God, cuts off every branch that does not bear good fruit. In, in, in Acts, when, when Peter preaches, in Acts 2, after he finished preaching, people were cut to the heart. You see, something about covenant and our relationship with God has to do about being cut. And you see, why we hesitate, why we hold back, is because we don't want to feel the cut. We don't like getting cut. And you know, all these demands, they will cut you. Joining a church as a covenant partner will cut you. Well, he will probably cut you financially through giving. You're supposed to support the local church for the ministry and the works and worship God in that way. So it will cut you financially. It will cut your time because you have to attend equip groups and tea times. Um, it will cut your pride through serving others. And it will cut your autonomy by submitting to your brothers and sisters in that church. Now also, baptism will cut too. Uh, for many non-Christian families, it's okay for their family member to attend a church, but they're not okay with the family member being baptized. In a way, it's cutting the bloodlines to join a new family. And you don't want to take that step because you fear the pain of upsetting your family. You're afraid and you don't want to take that step. You don't want to feel that cut. And of course, walking blameless, pursuing holiness, that's the walk of a thousand cuts. It requires to be to cut out sin. It's to cut out our fleshly desire. And often it's asking us to cut out ourselves. You see, we don't want to feel the cut. Jesus also said, whoever is his disciple must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow him. He's saying you must cut yourself. Well, follow him where? where? Where was he going? Well, follow him to the cross. There, the king of kings, the promised final royal of God's promise to Abraham, there this king on the cross was cut. He was cut in his hands and feet. He was cut on his forehead from the thorns. He was cut in the side with a spear and ultimately was cut from the father. And when you see him who did walk blameless before God being cut for you because you failed to walk blameless before God, how can you not respond with a willingness to take some small cuts for him? You see, the only reasonable response to someone who has given himself freely and utterly for you, the only reasonable response for somebody who has been cut for you is to give yourself freely and utterly to him, to take some cuts for him. This morning we see that God is the one who takes the initiative. He chooses us. He sets us apart. He pursues intimate personal relationship with us. And when we struggle and when we fail, when we are too afraid to cut things out of our lives, 
we must only look to him. And he will remind us through the power of the cross that he is El Shaddai, all-powerful, almighty, and all-sufficient for us. He is the God who sets us apart. And he is worth taking any kind of cut. Let us pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are all-powerful. And Father, we rejoice and we know in our hearts and we need to be reminded that you are all-sufficient. This morning we come to you and we ask that you minister to our hearts. Help us respond to the cross. May your finished work on the cross cut us to the heart and have us respond in a way worthy of the new covenant we have with you. We ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will help us walk blameless before you. In community, through our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.